Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. We are still suffering from a not-ended COVID-19 pandemic. We could be near the end, or we could be facing another wave from tough variants. One thing that is crucial is that we are being vaccinated for free, and the government is caring for us. What a concept. Healthcare is an important topic, often fought over by the right versus the left. Rather than fumble along by myself, I have invited a healthcare expert to move the discussion along. The author of the book, Priced Out, The Economic and Ethical Costs of American Healthcare, by Uwe Reinhardt, who died soon after he finished writing it. We have with us today his partner in life and work, who helped to publish Uwe's book and is a healthcare policy analyst at Princeton University, where Uwe taught for many years. Tsun Mai Cheng is well known in her own right and was acknowledged by her husband for her contributions to Priced Out. She also wrote the epilogue. I hope that our conversation today helps clear up some confusion that many listeners may have. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Tsun Mai Cheng to Politics, A Love Story. I'm certainly very pleased to have you here. So Uwe starts off saying, the manner in which we finance healthcare in this country in particular is bewildering and inefficient. It is one of chaos behind a veil of secrecy. Could you please explain what he meant? The American way of financing our healthcare system uh, is very complex and very confusing. Most people think of the American healthcare system as a privately run healthcare system. That is not the case. Um, roughly one half of what we spend as a nation on healthcare. Uh, is, is runs through public insurance programs, such as Medicare, Medicaid, uh, the uh, TRICARE for military families, and, um, and the VA system. And <clears throat> roughly uh, 34% or so of what we spend uh, is through this uh, private health insurance system. And, um, and, and that is the part that... Is, that is so very highly complex and confusing uh, to Americans because we have uh, these, the private health insurance, they are run or offered to Americans uh, by multiple private insurers. Uh, and each enters into these individual contracts with organizations uh, uh, or employers. Um, uh, and, and, and the terms and, and the costs are all different, and they are secret also. It, it's trade secret. Um, and, 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 so, and, and so it's very, very hard to understand. Uh, and also it, 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 it explains why prices uh, for healthcare goods and services are charged by, uh, by uh, different insurance companies and paid by different provider organizations, hospitals and doctors, vary by so much, by as much as 10, uh, 11 times, you know, the variations. So, so I think that is what Uva meant by that the American way of financing our healthcare 
is 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 you know it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a secrecy uh, behind a veil of no it's it's confusion behind a veil of secrecy. One of the things that points out what you just said is uh, in 2008, Uva, as uh, chair of the New Jersey Commission on Rationalizing Healthcare Resources, asked the CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield Horizon of New Jersey, the largest health insurer in the state, what his company actually paid for a routine screening colonoscopy, not the list price. The answer was more than 50 distinct prices, sometimes different prices to the same hospital, depending upon the insurance policy of the patient. Well, that goes right to what you just said. Exactly. That, that, is, that was a concrete example of how prices vary. Uh, the different insurance companies uh, charge different hospitals, different doctors' groups, different prices depending on the contract they negotiated and entered into. Um, I, just, I just read in another publication, I think it was on, uh, yeah, in some other publication last night, that prices, price variations, both prices charged and prices paid, vary by up to 11 times uh, between insurers and provider organizations. Well, one of the other things I got out of the book was that many Americans, perhaps most, believe that ours is the best health care system in the world, bar none. That belief may rest on the fact that we spend more on health care than does any other developed nation. But we don't spend it wisely, do we? No, we don't. Uh, I think it is a myth and a fallacy uh, to think that that America uh, has the best healthcare system in the world. And I, I think Americans are gradually beginning to realize that that is in fact the case. That is my own sense, uh, because we, we we now do uh, uh, have begun to look at other healthcare systems, and we do. Uh, we do know what goes on in other health care systems. We do know uh, more about other, uh, the, the, the health status of uh, people in other countries. And so we know uh, that, that, no, ours is not the best health care system uh, in the world. We spend the most, that is for sure. <laughs> and it, among many, many uh, of the other equally, uh, or, or comparable OECD countries, uh, their health spending is, in terms of a total national, uh, in terms of total GDP, they spend roughly a, a, about two-thirds of what we spend, 66% of what we spend. Now, on a per capita basis, you know, Americans now spend, um, spend over $1,200, no, 12000 $12,000 per person on health care a year. And that is, and, and other countries spend, their per capita health spending is about 55% of that. So, so you can see that there's a huge difference in what we spend and what other countries, comparable countries, rich nations spend. But, but look at these other countries. They uh, have more doctors, more nurses, more beds, uh, longer hospital stays, 
In other words, people there use more health care than Americans do. And they have better health outcomes. Uh, you know, the, 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 a very, uh, uh, one way of, of looking at health care outcomes is in how, how much the uh, avoidable death is reduced through, uh, through uh, timely medical care. It's called amenable mortality. In all the uh, comparable OECD countries, the reduction in amenable mortality uh, in the last 10, 20 years has been much, much more rapid than the reduction in amenable mortality in the United States. So what this is telling you is that, yes, we spend a ton of money, so much more than every every other country, but our uh, amenable mortality reduction is so much slower than all these other countries. Hmm. And another measure is you look at life expectancy. Of course, we know that you cannot, you know, you cannot say that life expectancy is determined by how good your health care is, uh, but it is one factor. The in, in, in comparable OEC countries, uh, life expectancy is anywhere from three to five years longer than American life expectancy. Uh, in in Germany, it's it's uh, the Germans live an average of three years longer than an average American. Uh, a French person uh, is lives four years longer, and in in Switzerland, in Japan, they live more than five years longer than a, your average American. So these are some of the things that tell us that that we ours is a system with a lot of problems, uh, a lot of waste that would, you know, like you said, money not well spent. Well, one of the other problems, I believe, that uh, pushes those uh, bad numbers up for us is the fact that there are still 20 million people that are uncovered uh, by any form of uh, health care. In fact, uh, early in the book, the debate about U.S. healthcare policy in the U.S. is conducted in the jargon of economics and constitutional federal-state relations. But it is not really about economics and the Constitution at all. Instead, at the heart of the debate is a long-simmering argument over the following question of distributive social ethics. To what extent should society be made to be their poorer, and sick brothers and sisters keepers in health care. Yeah, I think that was an important point that Uva was trying to make, isn't it? I am so glad you brought this point up. Yes, this, this, this point it lies at the heart of what he has been writing and speaking about, and, and, and which is uh, he calls the elephant in the room in American health care, uh, and that is, the question of distributive social ethics in this country. Uwe's point was that if you look at all the other countries, again, let's do only OECD, comparable OECD countries, rich, developed. In those countries, there is a consensus of what healthcare should be. And that consensus is social solidarity. It is Healthcare as a right. It is a right. And people agree on that. And then they go about building their health system 
around those principles, around those values. We, in this country, we do it differently. Here, Americans are very div divided. Basically, we can say they, 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 they're divided uh, into two camps, uh, with the middle camp that's sort of undecided. See, on, on, on the one side, you have the conservatives uh, who believe that health care is a private consumption good. And that should be, you know, whether one should get health care uh, is, is an individual responsibility. But on the other side of this uh, spectrum, you have these uh, liberals who believe that health care is a social good. Uh, it is a right, and that it should be provided to all Americans on equal terms and based on their health care needs and not based on their ability to pay, as the conservative camp believes. Now, between the conservatives and liberal camps is this vast middle uh, pool of Americans who who don't have a firm opinion on what healthcare should be, uh, and and so because of this lack of a social consensus that our healthcare is the way it is, that it is, uh, you know, it, it, it's a multi-tiered system. We have the uninsured, and we will continue to have the uninsured. Um, in, in fact, uh, I think either the CN CMS or the uh, CBO came out saying that the abolition of the individual mandate from the Affordable Care Act will, in fact, drive up the number of insured because, because you know, and, and, and the people who choose not to join will tend to be the younger ones and the healthy ones, uh, and, and therefore the existing uh, the health insurance, Obamacare population, you know, will, as, as, as a group, be paying more than uh, higher premiums than they would be if the mandate had remained in place and that, that the, the young and healthy ones are part of that pool helping to share the cost. And uh, I think one of the other aspects here, um, now where was I? Okay, so let, let's, let me give you some numbers that you could then uh, explain more to us about. Uh, in 2016, the total national health spending in the U.S. amounted to $3.4 trillion, a claim of 18.1% of U.S. GDP, which was then $18.5 trillion. That claim is projected to reach 20% by 2025. No other nation even comes close to adding that large a share of its GDP to its health care sector. And part of that reason is for the number of the things that we were just discussing and that you pointed out before. Uh, but the, uh, the per capita health care costs in this country has been rising inexorably over the last half century. How inexorable these cost increases are can be gauged by the ease with which drug companies can raise prices even on long-established brand-name products and generics. This is a big problem here. Uh, yes. We do not have a good cost-control mechanism 
uh, now when, when, when I say we, I refer to the private uh, uh, sector uh, healthcare. In, uh, we have much better cost control with the public-run system uh, of Medicare, which is a single-payer system, by the way, as, as is the um, Medicare, uh, 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 as is the VA system. They're single-payer, so they, they, they can control costs. But the private health insurance system, we, we do not have a, have a good mechanism to control costs. And with, in recent years, with the um, hospital mergers, and more and more of them tend to be mega mergers, the, uh, so the, the large healthcare systems become very powerful in, in, in certain geographic areas. And once they gain market access, control of that area, then they pretty much dictate prices. And the insurers pretty much have to pay. See? So, 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 you know, there has been this long debate by many in this country that, you know, the, 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 the private sector can control costs uh, better. Let them do it, but but data to date does not show that that the private sector is has cannot be relied on to control costs in this country. Well, now that's not to say that there are no other, no other ways that we can change things. I, I think the Biden administration has many opportunities to make very meaningful changes to the problems that you just outlined. During George W. Bush's uh, terms, uh, he passed Medicare Part D, and there is one provision in there that prohibited CMS from negotiating drug prices. That in itself is unbelievable and unconscionable in almost any other country in the world. Right. I, I, I do very much agree with you. Um, to give you an example, you know, Switzerland, it is a 100% private health insurance system, 100%. You know, a, a bunch of private health insurers uh, provide insurance policies for all of the Swiss. And uh, but then guess how are drug prices determined in Switzerland? I, I once had an interview with the Swiss health minister, who was minister for 20 years, and he looked at me as if I was nuts. Why would I ask such a dumb question? <laughs> and he, he gave me a very simple answer, looking at me with a straight face and says, to the question, who sets drug prices in Switzerland? I thought the private parties were set, right? He says, no, I do. The health minister, the Ministry of Health, sets drug prices. Um, and 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 in in other health systems, uh, you know, the drug prices uh, in Germany they they have the reference pricing system, where insurers all agree that they for 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 a drug uh, that is for for a group of drugs that is considered efficacious for particular diseases, that this is the price they will pay. That's all. And then if patients want some big name, uh, name brand drug or something else, then they pay the difference. 
But here in in our Medicare Part D, the drug benefit, uh, specifically, CMS is forbidden to negotiate prices. That is unique. That makes us uh, exceptional. And you can call that an American exceptionalism. Like with so many things, we are exceptional, but not in the good way. Well, drug companies' excuse for their high prices is that uh, they have so much research to do that they need those high prices to pay for that research that will develop drugs into the future. But uh, uh, Uva pointed out that the costs of administration and marketing are twice as high as the money spent for uh, research and development. So what they're doing is spending a lot of money on detailers going out to doctors and pushing particular drugs. Now, the, the Sacklers, uh, not just uh, their uh, drug company that produced OxyContin, but the, the head of the family was one of the best marketers. In fact, he's the one that started detailers and spent all that money. And when uh, a drug came out, he had the company that he was working with uh, change one atom so that they could get a patent on it and charge extremely high prices for no better efficacious uh, effect of that particular drug. Yes, uh, Bob. Unfortunately, you know, the high cost of R&D uh, uh, makes it necessary for the pharma company to to charge such high prices. This is what they tell us. They've been feeding us this piece of um, uh, <laughs> you whatever you call it for, yes. for years and years. Garbage. I, I, I can relate to you a, a, a personal, uh, a true story. Because uh, Uva had been very curious about uh, just exactly how much uh, do drug companies spend on R&D. So he tried to find out how much of that each uh, drug dollar, how much of that goes into R&D. And after a lot of research and digging and, 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 and through some, you know, channels, he was given the data that in that, at that time, I would say probably could be as far as 20 years ago, the R&D cost per dollar of drug uh, money spent is 13 cents. <laughs> 13 cents out of each dollar goes to R&D. So it's not like what you might think that 70, 80% of, of your drug dollar goes to R&D, okay? Now, fast forward to 2000 and, um, let me think, 2018, at the Princeton Conference, it's a health policy, national health policy conference that Uwe and I started uh, in 1993 at the time of the 10th health reform. There was a session on pharmaceutical spending, the, the, the rapid rise of pharmaceutical costs in America. So I asked the same question to one of the panelists who was a drug company executive. I said, please tell me. So many years ago, it was 13 cents. What is it now? How much are you spending for each uh, uh, drug dollar? 
on R&B. He told the um, audience, 16 cents. Now, the 16 cents of every drug dollar goes into R&B. This I wish more Americans could, could hear and know and remember and do not buy what they are telling you. Uh, Let me uh, pause for a moment to reintroduce you. You are listening to Politics, a Love Story. Uh, The book we're talking about is Priced Out, the Economic and Ethical Costs of American Healthcare, uh, written by the late Uwe Reinhardt. And our guest today is his partner in life and business, uh, Sun Mei Cheng, uh, who is a healthcare expert in her own right, and she's here talking with us about the book and other things uh, that she has knowledge about. Uh, okay, May, uh, let's go on to the next thing. Fine. What's next? Okay, well, one of the things that's interesting is that between 1990 and 2012, the number of workers in the U.S. healthcare system grew by nearly 75%. Nearly 95% of this growth was in non-doctor workers. The problem with all the non-doctor labor is that most of it is not primarily associated with delivering better patient outcomes or lowering costs. It's more overhead. That is right. That is right. Uh, Let me give you a concrete example. I I think it's in Uwe's book also. Yes. In which he talked about the, um, the billing operations of the Duke University health system. And again, there it took him some, some doing to, to dig the numbers out, to get the number. The Duke University uh, health system at, at that time, say, let's say, you know, uh, seven to ten years ago, had 945 beds. But for billing... They had 1,600 billing clerks taking care of uh, 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 945 uh, beds billing business. And, and usually, you know, in any kind of uh, hospital and physician group uh, operations, the, the non-clinical health workers outnumber the clinical health workers. Um, and that is just a fact of life. And because of that, our administrative overhead is heavy and expensive. And that is why we spend so much on administrative costs in our healthcare system. Uh, to give you some concrete ideas so you can compare, the average administrative cost for OECD countries is 3%. And for the, comp- for the U.S. comparable rich OECD countries, uh, it, it hovers between 3 and 5%, like Germany is 5%. In America, on the other hand, our administrative cost is far, far higher. The, the, the private health insurance administrative cost, uh, the private health sector, uh, healthcare sector, 
administrative cost is 13%. Uh, hovers around 11, 13% of total health spending. But, and then for the uh, government-run systems, the, the Medicare, uh, the, the combined Medicare, traditional Medicare, and Medicare Advantage, the administrative cost is 7%. Hmm. So whether it's private or public sector healthcare administrative cost, both are far higher than the OECD average of 3%. In the book, um, Uva uh, refers to those costs as haircuts. Um, and he, he pointed out that the haircut for administrative costs and profit was as high as 45% pre-Obamacare for smaller insurers selling policies in the non-group market for individually purchased insurance. Insurance Under Obamacare, the portion of the premium going to market, marketing, administration, and profits was contained to 20% from 45 for small insurers and to 15% for large insurers where it had been over 20 with uh, the profit and the administrative costs combined. So uh, Obamacare has done a lot of good things, not just uh, give more people, millions of people, the ability to get health care, but also lower costs for the overall industry. You're absolutely right. Yes, yes. Uh, The the number, before Obamacare, administrative cost. Uh, for uh, for private sector health care runs between 25 to 30%. That's a haircut because whatever money is spent on administration is not spent on health care delivery, on improving health care, on giving better quality care, uh, or giving more care, more people care. Uh, and then for smaller insurance companies, the, the pop and mop shop uh, insurance companies, that haircut is 45%. It's just, it defies imagination. <laughs> uh, but now you're right. Obamacare did change that. And, and so the numbers I cited earlier uh, are the Obamacare, are, are the new administrative costs under Obamacare. You can see they're, they're much, much improved. And it, what's also interesting is that one would expect that the aging of the population within a country for example, the retiring of the baby boom generation in the United States must be a powerful driver of annual increases in total per capita health spending, averaged overall age groups. Is this actually so? Perhaps surprisingly, the answer seems to be no. The estimated effect of aging on spending still remains statistically insignificant. It is a curious and counterintuitive fact but one that should be noted. I am so glad, again, that you brought this point up. <laughs> Uva was absolutely right. In fact, in the book, he, he went on to say that the so-called aging of the American population, with boomers retiring, uh, contributes 0.5% of the annual increase in health spending in America. Okay? So, so it's just not true. And, and, and besides, you know, we have the youngest population among comparable OECD countries. And, and 
all the European uh, comparable OECD countries and Japan are much, much older, the population's there. And so you think that their health spending should be more than ours, right? Yes. But on average, I mentioned earlier, they spend roughly two-thirds of what we spend. Uh, and in terms of per capita, they spend a little more than half uh, we spend on health care. So it's just not the case. And to take a country example, take Japan. Japan has the oldest population on Earth. Today, the, they have like something like, what is it, between 26 and 28 percent of all Japanese are over age 65. But Japan's health spending is at the lower end of the comparable OECD nations. They spend roughly 11 percent of their GDP on health care, and we're spending more than 18 percent of J- GDP. So, that, so if, if population aging is the contributor, is the drive, driver of health spending, then Japan's health spending should be, you know, Japan and the United States should, um, should change places, right? That, that they should be spending what we're spending and we should be spending what they're spending, hmm. given how old their population is and how young our population is. Well, another interesting thing here, uh, the high price of U.S. health care. Uh, so the prices for virtually any health care product or service in the U.S. tend to be at least twice as high as those for comparable products or services in other countries. Relative to other countries, prices in the U.S. make providers of health care better off and the users of health care worse off. It is a matter of income distribution on which economists do not have much to say. But I'm sure Uva did, right? Uva was pointing out that those facts, that because we do not have good cost control mechanisms in this country, that the prices of healthcare goods and services are largely determined by the market power of the providers. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, these mega hospital mergers usually lead to large price increases. You know, in fact, there's a very nice good study by Zach Cooper at Yale. Uh, Between 2007 and 2014, uh, hospital mergers, hospital price increases because of mergers, explained 45%. They raised their prices by 45%. You know, that's the biggest cost driver. Um, And and so so that's that's how things are in this country. Uh, We just don't have a good way, the private sector do not have a good way to uh, control costs. The, the the federal Medicare program, they do control costs better because it is a single payer. It sets prices, and not perfectly, but it, 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 it controls spending uh, growth much more effectively than the private sector. Um, let, me so, ask, let me ask you a question. Um, do you think that if 
individual uh, people, you and I, if we were incentivized in some way to seek out better pricing for health care, that that would make a difference. And I use a personal example for that. There was somebody that I was close to that didn't have health insurance and needed a chest X-ray. And um, without getting uh, Medi-Cal, which is uh, California's version of Medicaid, uh, they were going to have to pay whatever was being charged. And our local hospital, it was like $3,000. And then with cash, it would have been 2200 And in calling around, I found uh, a, uh, a center down about 120 miles away where it was only $500 cash uh, for that same x-ray that would have been 3000 or 2200 with cash here where I am. So I wonder, would people spend the time and effort to try to get better prices? Would that help push down the overall market prices for things? Do you think it would be any good? I don't know if this is just a crazy idea I had. I don't know if it has any bearing on the facts. Oh, no. I think you, you just uh, gave an excellent example of the tremendous price variations of healthcare in America. That there, there, there can be, like for New Jersey, for a colonoscopy in New Jersey within the Blue Cross, yeah. uh, right? Yes. That 50 different prices. And, and if you kept on calling up about prices, in California, you'll probably get 500 different prices. Uh, but the thing is, you know, how many people will have the time or the or the know-how to do what you did? Uh, and and besides, uh, this tri- price transparency, which the Trump administration tried to do, but it didn't really work out. Uh, there are people who were given uh, for a definite well-defined procedure, appendectomy, a a price, 5,000-something at some hospital. But then when the final bill came, the bill was $10,000. So, so, you know, price transparency in this country, it's, uh, I mean, I think it's a a price uh, pipe dream uh, if we don't do some fundamental payment system reforms. Now, there are ways to, do, to deal with this. Uh, there, there, there are a number of other countries, uh, health, health uh, uh, care systems, that don't have these price variations. I'll be very happy to give you some examples, which were things that if, if only America could transition to something like those systems, we would be so much uh, better off. In terms of what we spend on healthcare, in terms of uh, covering more people, if not all people, with health insurance, uh, in, in terms of using, you know, much more healthcare, um, and all the rest. Well, one of the problems we have in this country is, first of all, the lobbying system. So, a big pharma has many millions of dollars to spend to uh, coax members of Congress who will change laws into seeing it the way Big Pharma wants them to see it. Uh, Another aspect is um, that uh, 
libertarians who feel that everyone should be on their own and you should use your bootstraps to pick yourselves up and get ahead. Uh, the problem is, of those 20 million people who don't have any health care access at all, not only don't they have bootstraps, they may not even have shoes. So how can everyone get to that point? And especially if they're of color, that makes it even more disadvantageous to them. So we've got a lot of problems to overcome in order to find some kind of equity in this system. Uh, again, Bob, uh, sadly, I fully agree with everything you just said. And that is why Uva was not optimistic about the fate of the uninsured in America. And with regard to health reform, he thought that, you know, yeah, we will muddle through like we always had. We may have incremental reforms here and there, but bold reforms, you know, they will come about far and few in, in between. This next passage from the book I thought was fairly interesting, and it gets more to the heart of the matter uh, because I remember in 2010 when there was a resurgence of uh, Republican seats in the House uh, due to the Tea Party type people. And I, I remember at a town hall meeting when they were talking about various things, one woman stood up and said, I want you to keep out of my Medicare. I, I don't want the government doing anything like that. Yeah. Well, who yeah. does she think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that too, yes. Yeah, the, 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 she did say that, not knowing that Medicare is a government-run system. Right, which brings me to this next point. Who actually pays for health care? Uh, often not appreciated by the public is that roughly half of all U.S. health spending now runs directly through government budgets. Medicare... Medicaid, TRICARE for the military, VA care, and public health. Thus, on the financing side, the U.S. health system long ago ceased to mainly be a private system. And two ironies that Uva noted in passing. Irony number one, is a single-payer health system, health insurance system, un-American? No, it is not. The still widely popular Medicare system for America's elderly and those afflicted with disabilities and renal failure passed in 1965 is a classic single-payer system run by the federal government of this huge and varied country with uniform fee schedules and rules applicable everywhere in the land. It's an irony, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. Um, but, but I mean, we already saw that a single care system just is not in the books at this time for this country, and and so so I would predict that would be the fate of a public option uh, if President Biden should pose it in, in this next phase of his rescue plan. Well, because of the, the such slim margins and the marginal aspect of uh, a couple of more conservative Democrats, it's going to be hard to get almost anything done unless the filibuster is changed or eliminated or something happens. But 
we ought to also talk about, and I think you're the perfect person to bounce this off of, and this is from the book again. To start, we must distinguish between social insurance and socialized medicine. They are not the same. Canada, Germany, Switzerland, Taiwan, Taiwan, Korea, and Japan operate social health insurance systems. But the healthcare delivery system is a mixture of public and private institutions, including for-profit institutions. These nations' health systems do not represent socialized medicine. Under socialized medicine, not only is the health insurance system socialized under government control, that means, but government also owns and operates all health care production and facilities. So people get confused. They use this term socialism. They have no idea what it means. Right. Yeah. Uh, Uwe was exactly right. Socialized medicine, uh, there is one socialized medicine in our country. That is the VA system. It is a government-financed and government-run system, meaning that the VA hospitals does the bulk of the delivery. And uh, only in very recent years... They say that, you know, that the veterans could go outside of the VA system to get needed care. Um, <clears throat> so so uh, socialized medicine, all it means is that everyone in that particular country should be covered with uh, social health insurance that is based on your health care needs. Um, and, um, and, and, and if you cannot afford to pay for the premium, then the government will help you uh, with, with, with premiums so that um, you could get health insurance. Uh, again, I like to use a Swiss uh, example. Switzerland is 100% uh, private health insurance country. Uh, and there, the, a very, very high percentage, over one-third of all Swiss, receive government subsidies towards their health insurance premiums to buy insurance. And there, there is also a mandate, right? And, and, and yet, and there, uh, the, the, the delivery of health care are totally private. And, and so that is, and yet we call the Swiss system a social insurance system. And that, it's totally unlike a government-financed, government-owned, uh, government-delivered health system, um, like in some other countries. So yes, uh, and 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 here I, I might also add that um, single-payer systems are not socialized medicine. Uh, I once testified in the Senate about single-payer systems. And I ran into Senator Bill Frist hmm. the night before. Uh, so I asked Senator Bill, what, he, what, he, what do Republicans think single-payer systems are? So he said, well, single-payer systems uh, are not socialized medicine, but people mix it up. Single-payer systems, like our Medicare, like Taiwan's national health insurance, which, by the way, Uber recommended for Taiwan to adopt 
single-payer system, but he did not recommend for America to adopt a single-payer system. In, 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 in those systems, the uh, majority of healthcare uh, services are delivered through private delivery systems. Hospitals are mostly um, private, and, uh, and doctors are private. Well, there's an, another interesting aspect here um, I wanted to bring up. Um, in Canada and virtually all European and Asian developed nations, they have reached decades ago a political consensus to treat healthcare as a social good. And let me expand upon this a bit. So if everyone, or almost everyone in this country, had access to health care, we'd have a healthier population. There'd be fewer days of sick leave necessary. Uh, there would be fewer people infected by those that have to come to work, otherwise they don't get paid. So there is a social good to being healthy in this country, and I don't think that people pay any attention to that whatsoever. You're right again, Bob. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not searching I for kudos. Be interviewing you. <laughs> no, no, I, yeah, the, the 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 social cost, the economic cost of not having health insurance for everyone is enormous. You know, not people who are uh, uninsured or who have who are underinsured. Uh, they are uh, more sick more of the time. Um, and, and, and then eventually their health care cost could be much higher, run much higher than if their problems had been taken care of or managed early on. Uh, and, but, 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 but that is why, you see, our health care system is really not health care, it's sick care system. I think other people have called it that too. Uh, we do so little to, 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 to improve the population health of our people. Uh, we don't do good disease management. Um, and, and so our outcomes are, are, are worse than in many other countries uh, for many of the diseases and chronic conditions. Well, if everyone had access to health care, there would be more preventative health care. Uh, we have, I think it was pointed out in the book, 70% of our population is obese. That leads to diabetes and so many other health issues uh, that then cost a lot of money. In fact, let me get to a point that was brought out in the book. In 2014, 90% of the population accounted for only 35% of all health care spending. The most expensive 10% of the population accounted for about two-thirds of all health spending, and the most expensive 1% for almost 22% of all health spending. That's an awful lot for so few uh, people. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, especially in our healthcare system where we have no limit on what can be done for a patient. Um, <clears throat> it, it's whatever the doctors and hospitals think might work. For, for for a very sick patient, we do it, uh, and and that and 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 that's why the concentration of that much healthcare spending on so few people. 
um, other countries are very different. Uh, they have uh, what's called health technology assessment mechanisms that guide their systems. Uh, the most famous example is the um, is the uh, British, the UK, uh, NICE, National Institute for Healthcare Excellence. They, I mean, they don't say this officially, but everybody knows that they do put a threshold on, on, in other words, a limit on how much money uh, should be spent uh, to save somebody. Um, and, and that price is, say, 30,000 pounds, which is roughly 50,000 U.S. dollars that, you know, treatment, drugs, procedures above that level will have a very hard time getting approved by NICE, uh, which recommends these uh, new, uh, new drugs and new treatments to the National Health Service. But here, we don't have any such mechanism. Here, in fact, the Cong Congress mandates that for Medicare patients, anything under the sun, as long as it is clinically safe, we should cover. Uh, we do not ask the question of cost effectiveness. It is forbidden. You mentioned that earlier in our conversation. Well, that was specifically in Medicare Part D for drugs. Yeah, but, but in general. That is in general with other things, too, with, with uh, medical treatments also. So, so, so that, that is why the high health spending, the high concentration of costs on so limited, so few, uh, so slim a segment of the sick, of the population. Um, because in America, really, literally, sky is the limit. I, I remember seeing a uh, healthcare documentary once where you have this uh, uh, Medicare patient who was diabetic, end-stage renal failure. Hmm. Uh, she, she was <clears throat> not... Um, she had lost her cognitive uh, uh, capabilities so she, li she lays there in a hospital bed and is kept on tubes and machines. But her son did not want her to go. So, so in the end, after nearly two years, her medical costs came to $2 million, over $2 million. Now, I... I I mean, in the UK, you know, this simply would not be the case. And their population is just simply also more accepting of the inevitable, of the ultimately inevitable. Uh, they, they also have this notion of the public good, you know, of, of sharing, a limited part of resources. But, but here we don't. Well, and there's a reason for that. Uh, the U.S. health system has been carefully structured, often through enabling legislation triggered by special interest groups 
to allow the supply side of the healthcare sector to extract enormous sums of money from the rest of society. Nowhere is this clearer than with specialty drugs whose prices per year of treatment now routinely exceed $100,000. Yet on Capitol Hill, the system has always had its staunch defenders for obvious reasons. And I want to read two more things from the book, uh, and we're coming close to the end of our time. Republicans who have lied about the effectiveness of Obamacare since it's being passed by both houses of Congress and signed by President Obama and have vowed to remove and replace the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, have been like drunken lovers at a bar. Big talk, little action. And the last one I want to point out is uh, Uwe Reinhardt said in a 2013 interview what if Senator Bernie Sanders were to present his Medicare for All plan to Congress? It would be dead on arrival because politically you cannot legislate what rationally makes perfect sense. So yeah. um, we're just about done. Um, and uh, this has been very enlightening for me. Um, I thank you very much, May, for being a part of this. And um, if you write something, uh, and it's going to go through Princeton University Press, please let uh, Jim uh, Schneider know, and I would like to interview you for whatever you do. Uh, this has been very good. Thank you very much for being oh, on we Politics, a Love Story. You were going to say something. I'm sorry I cut you off. Uh, no, no, no. I wanted to thank you for, for having me on, on this program. And you've you've got some excellent quotes out of the book, and um, and 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 Uva can uh, say things that that just you know just cut through the chase hmm. and, and and help you understand. And um, so so I'm I'm just so glad that this this book is being brought to more audiences through your program. Thank you, Bob. Well, thank you, May. And uh, be well and safe. And thank you very much for being here. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.